Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Sean. This is the People's Medicine Show. This is a call-in show, so you're welcome to call in and add to the discussion. I do this show once a month on the first Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's on the Susan Weed Blog Talk channel, which can be found at blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed. So I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, Susan Weed uh, gave me this uh, opportunity a couple years ago, and it's about two years since I started doing these shows, and it's been wonderful. I'm really, it's exciting. It's very nerve. It feels very nervous that I'm going to go on the air and broadcast to a global audience. And I was asked, what, what do I want to uh, do a show about? And I was like, I want to do a show about everything, but I am interested in herbal medicine. I drink uh, the nourishing herbal infusions every day. That's basically how I call myself an herbalist. Uh, today I've been drinking the red clover infusion, but let's get back to um, uh, some programming notes that uh, Susan was on her show on Tuesday night. Just giving her team uh, complete gratitude. And I wouldn't have this opportunity if there wasn't a, a team of people around Susan, including her daughter and Rebecca. And I just wanted to thank everyone for keeping this blog talk channel uh, financed and managed. And thank you for giving me any kind of input and help on doing this show. So I picked a number of topics today to um, discuss and that I, I, I attend a public speaking club. They've been helping me to not say uh and um when I'm speaking. The other day I did an evaluation of someone's speech and it was uh, one minute and 50 minutes that I spoke and the person counted I said uh and um about 21 times in one minute and 50 seconds. So I've noticed that the best way to avoid saying uh and um is to just take a, a pause. I'm not sure how helpful that is to tell everyone, but this is what I've been working on. So my first theme for the next two hours is I pick a theme every month, and I wanted to pick something along where I've been just really recognizing people that don't talk too much. They don't brag too much, but they have something. And I don't know if it would be called charisma. And then I heard a term in the past month, and I wish I traced where I first heard it. It might have been on the, the Do By Friday podcast. But the term is called big dick energy. So I was like, that, wow, what is that? And <laughs> you basically know what a big dick energy is. A person that has a big dick, they're not they know they have a big dick and they're not about to show anybody or brag to anybody about it. And they just carry themselves in a confident, sure way. So I Googled it a few times and I suppose a more polite way to say a big dick energy is an understated confidence. Um, I was I was laughing at myself, uh, la laughing at the thing though. Like, who doesn't have a big dick energy? And Donald Trump definitely does not have a big dick energy. His confidence is very much out there and like sort of overcompensating for some kind of um, deep insecurity. So, 
so let's uh, I, I Googled Big Dick Energy. I was like, where did this come from? And it just was invented in 2018, supposedly. And I, I love going to a website called knowyourmeme.com. Whenever you hear something on the Internet, check that out, throw it into their search box, and they'll give you a complete um, – oh, there it goes, um, um. They do a very thorough job, though, of scouring the Internet and – giving you a, a history of anything that you hear. And they'll say, well, it was first posted by such and such. And it was first posted in June of this year on Twitter. And it was describing uh, the late Anthony Bourdain. And the um, Anthony Bourdain had a big dick energy. He was... Uh, had an understated confidence, but he was a completely very capable person. I was thinking about Anthony Bourdain, though, and his uh, his Italian actress girlfriend, how they became part of the the Me Too movement, how she came out and said, oh, this uh, gentleman, Harvey Weinstein, I met him 20 years ago, and he completely uh, victimized me in such a way. And I'm not sure if what was Anthony Bourdain aware of behind the scenes before he passed away. But um, it turned out that his Italian actress girlfriend had to pay someone $300,000 because she had sex with a 17-year-old co-worker. So I guess that does fall into, um, you know, a victim who perpetrated um, the crime that was put against them. But um, it's just a little a little side tangent, though, like what was happening with Anthony Bourdain? Was he aware of um, that surprise that was going to happen, that we were going to find out that one of the um, big personalities who propelled the Me Too movement was, in fact, um, a perpetrator themselves, or, or they claimed responsibility as much as they could by... Um, paying the person off, and um, that's an interesting story, though. I remember hearing about it, and then, um, you know, you looked at the actor who was 17 years old, and he did stop um, um, <laughs> he did stop working for a few years, so perhaps uh, $300,000 was um, adequate compensation, but it was a, it was a, it was a funny um, comment, though, that, oh, you can have, you can, you can have sex, and with um, one of the most beautiful actresses in the world and get paid $300,000. So it was sort of a joke amongst people. I just wanted to um, fool around with um, some of these uh, stuff that surrounds the big dick energy. So the second person that it really became in the mainstream sort of zeitgeist was someone who I've talked about on this previous show who I was like, this person has some kind of awesomeness and I don't know who what they are and I found out more about it and his name is Pete Davidson he was on the what the the WTF podcast a few months ago and he was talking about how he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and and his father passed away in um, 2001 and, and he, he was a worker at the uh, Twin Towers and that um, you know, sort of you know, early childhood trauma led to this sort of borderline personality. But he's, he mentioned a, 
a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, and I wanted to talk about that last month. For some reason, that just came into my head, and I was like, let's explore that. Let's look at that. So it's a brand new sort of offshoot of cognitive behavior therapy. So I'll read a little bit about um, dialectical behavior therapy. So I'll pick up a little bit where I kind of left off last month's show. Dialectical behavior therapy is an evidence-based psychotherapy designed to help people suffering from borderline personality disorder. It has also been used to treat mood disorders as well as those who need to change patterns of behavior that are not helpful, such as self-harm, suicidal ideation, and substance abuse. This approach works towards helping people increase their emotional and cognitive regulation by learning about the triggers that lead to reactive states and helping to assess which coping skills to apply in the sequence of events, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors to help avoid undesired reactions. DBT assumes that people are doing their best but lack the skills needed to succeed or are influenced by positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement that interferes with their ability to function appropriately. So that was just a straight up uh, Wikipedia introduction to what dialectical behavior therapy is. So I've um, talked a little bit about big dick energy. I want it. I don't know if I have it. Perhaps people will tell me if I have it or not. I don't really, but you know what? I think if you have big dick energy, you don't really care if you if you have it or not, because it really is. Um, I I don't give a shit attitude. And in Pete Davidson's interview on the WTF podcast, he he said he he auditioned for Saturday Night Live, and the producer Lorne Michaels uh, said, um, "No, you're not right." And he's like, "Yeah, you're. You know what? I'm not right for this job." And it, it and they they I think it was his. I don't care. That actually where they called him back and said, you know, you are right for this job. You do have the confidence to be part of our cast. So I, I think that's a pretty uh, succinct way of uh, uh, telling whether someone has a big dick energy or not. The other funny thing is that when you Google around, um, there's a few articles about big dick energy, and you don't need to have a dick to have big dick energy. <laughs> That's uh, another funny thing. But um, so I picked an herb that I've been um, experimenting and playing with lately, and I purchased some dried schizandra chinensis berries. I think it was back in April, and I went ahead and tinctured some. And then I strained the tincture in the past couple of weeks, and now I have about a pint of this Cassandra tincture. And wow, what an interesting, interesting flavor. I'm not sure if I needed to tincture it from all the way from April all the way up to September, but that's how long I tinctured it for. I believe I measured a one-cup uh, uh, amount, and I weighed one cup today because I wanted to also... Um, tincture it a different way by uh, grinding it into a powder and then tincturing it. So I used one cup of dried schizandra berries, and I tinctured it, I believe, in like two cups of 100-proof vodka and shook it a few times, 
and um, kept it in a dark place, and I strained it. Uh, an interesting thing that I, or I don't know if it's called interesting, but uh, uh, something that I don't hear much about on the herbalist community is when you're making a tincture, there's a mark, which is the liquid, no, wait, the mark is the solid part of your tincture, and the menstruum is the vodka or the solvent part of your tincture. So I strained my schizandra tincture, and I was left with the mark. And it, that was um, sort of um, the leftover schizandra that uh, has been depleted from a lot of the uh, anthocyanins and different constituents that was extracted by soaking in the vodka for three or four months. So I was told that there's a way to further extract the mark by making a tincture tea. So I dumped it into a, a one-quart jar, and I basically made a nourishing infusion with the leftover schizandra berries by pouring hot boiling water, putting a canning jar lid in it, and letting it sit for overnight or about 24 hours. I strained that and then composted the schizandra, schizandra mark. And wow, I've been drinking the sort of alcohol sort of tea in the past few days. It's not enough alcohol to give me any kind of buzz, but boy, it was really, really yummy. And it took me maybe three or four days to finish it. So when you make a tincture tea from leftover uh, plant material, when you're making, you can refrigerate it. And for some reason, um, the uh, small amount of alcohol that's mixed with the water, that um, the infusion water, seems to keep it from growing any mold or turning, you know, sour. But I'm really not too sure. I haven't really played with how long does a tincture tea last. So I've been drinking that for the past few days. And schizandra, you really have to just taste it to, to know what it is. I think it's been called five-flavor berry. So it has pungent. That's the one thing. It's just a really interesting flavor, like pungent. I don't know if I could call it interesting. Again, I'm using that word interesting a lot too much. But there's a pungentness. When it first hits my mouth, it was sweet. It's got salty and sour, pungent. I think it also may have some bitter, so I don't know if I'm counting it all. But um, schizandra is definitely it's listed as something that is very helpful for the liver. And the... Oh, wow. I thought I had um, the material on schizandra already to read about. But uh, let's see if I have, um, huh. So I didn't, I didn't keep my tabs open. Someone was asking me, what's the best cell phone to make YouTube videos with? And I was like, I opened a bunch of um, tabs, and I think I, I lost some of my tabs. Let me see. So it looks like I did not um, keep my material on schizandra. So anyway, it is adaptogenic. It's an adaptogenic herb, and it assists the body in recovering from stress. And they believe the action occurs in the liver, where it just helps the liver. So that seems to be where, and then it also has some brain-enhancing properties where 
wow, I wish I um, did not misplace my open. Um, you know what, though? I have history on my web browser, and perhaps I can just bring it up on my history. All right. Here we go. All right, so it's just from WebMD. So I'm going to read some, some little something from WebMD on Cassandra, and I've been finding out that WebMD is just fine. Even drugs.com, when you want to just get the basic gist of what, of what an herb is, I'm finding both those very mainstream websites are really helpful. Scientists and doctors rely on those websites, um, webmd.com and drugs.com. So they're going to be very scientifically based and as factual as possible. So let's read a little bit about Schizandra chinensis. Schizandra is a plant. The fruit is used as a food and also to make medicine. Schizandra is used as a, quote, adaptogen for increasing resistance to disease and stress, increasing energy, and increasing physical performance and endurance. Schizandra is also used for preventing early aging and increasing lifespan, normalizing blood sugar and blood pressure, stimulating the immune system, and speeding recovery after surgery. It is also used for treating liver disease, hepatitis and protecting the liver from poisons. The Chinese have developed a liver-protecting drug called DBD that is made from schizandrin, one of the chemicals in schizandra. Other uses for schizandra include treatment of high cholesterol, pneumonia, coughs, asthma, sleep, disturbance, tiredness, or irritability associated with emotional disturbance, neurasthenia, premenstrual syndrome, Chronic diarrhea, dysentery, night sweat, spontaneous sweating, involuntary charge of semen, <laughs> thirst, erectile dysfunction, physical exhaustion, excessive urination, depression, irritability, and memory loss. It is also used in children to reduce the frequency and severity of attacks of fever associated with an inherited disease called familial Mediterranean fever. So that is a lot of uses of schizandra. <laughs> Um, involuntary discharge of semen was pretty funny. Uh, some people use schizandra for improving vision and muscular activity, protecting against radiation, preventing motion sickness, preventing infection, and boosting energy at the cellular level, and improving the health of the adrenal glands. Schizandra fruit is eaten as the food. How does it work? The chemical and to improve liver function by stimulating enzymes, proteins that speed up biochemical reactions in the liver and promoting liver cell growth. Uh, so there's uh, we we went through a lot of the uses. I'm going to go through. Let's see. Look at look at the side effects. Okay, pregnancy like most herbs, schizandra is possibly unsafe when taken by mouth during pregnancy. Epilepsy. At least one expert warns against using schizandra if you have epilepsy. The reason for this is warning is not clear. It may be due to a concern that schizandra could possibly stimulate the central nervous system. Okay, so it doesn't look like uh, gastroesophageal reflex or peptic ulcers. Schizandra might might make these conditions worse by increasing stomach acid, and then high brain intracranial pressure. There is concern that schizandra might make this condition worse because it could possibly stimulate the central. Okay, so it's 
it appears to be an incredibly safe drug. There's not or uh, herb or food, and um, that's wild. And not seeing any. Okay, interactions. Be cautious with this combination. Moderate interaction. It's listed as. So. Um, Medications changed by the liver, medications changed by the liver. Tacrolimus interacts with, okay, Prograph. I don't know what that drug is. Warfarin, warfarin interacts. It's used to slow blood clotting. So, Schizandra might increase the breakdown and decrease the effectiveness of uh, warfarin, decreasing the effectiveness of Coumadin. I don't know there's many um, herbs or foods that do not interfere with warfarin coumadin. <laughs> so um, that is a tricky drug when it comes to uh, having interactions with all kinds of things. So dosing. Let's look at dosing. Uh, for hepatitis, Sandra standardized to 20 milligrams, equivalent to 1.5 grams of crude, Schizandra given daily. <clears throat> So for improving mental clarity, 500 milligrams to 2 grams of schizandra um, extract daily or 1.5 to 6 grams of crude schizandra. So I've been using 100 grams to make a one-pint um, tincture. So um, if I was going to dose it at 3, I made about 30 doses. So yeah, the, it's going to be a maybe one or two eyedroppers maybe. But again, I'm not sure if the tincture I made is going to be as good as the one that I'll make from the powder tincture. Um, so people have also taken 100 milligrams of schizandra extract twice daily. Appropriate dosing may vary depending on extract, extract type and lignin content. So We've uh, spoken about schizandra. I'd love to have some feedback if anyone is more knowledgeable than me about schizandra or has years of experience. Um, I wanted to tell everyone I can be reached most easily at the email for this blog talk show, which is People's Medicine Show at gmail.com. My name is Sean, S-E-A-N. My last name is Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. So I can be found on Facebook. You can message me. If you have a Facebook profile picture, you're welcome to send me a message uh, through Facebook. And I've been a little bit shy with accepting friendship requests on Facebook because I'm getting friendship requests from people that don't even have a profile picture. They don't have any common friends or I don't even know if, if you're real. So there is some apprehension I've been feeling lately about Facebook and just the anonymity of Facebook and how it's mixed with people that I do know in the real world. So it's just one of these really, I feel very conflicted. And I've been involved with Facebook for about 10 years and I've had a lot of fun with it. It's also made me want to jump out a window and made me really crazy and overstimulated. I've uh, accepted about 500 friend re requests and I'm like, since learning about Dunbar's number or the, the monkey sphere, you know, that we could probably be intimate with 150 people at one time. And um, so I've downloaded a few um, cool clips that I'm going to play on today's show. 
I think I'm going to take a couple minutes. I've been talking for over 20 minutes now. I've spoken about big dick energy, and I gave gave a little bit of report on my work with Cassandra Berry. I'm going to take a few minutes, and I will be back after that. Let me make sure. Did I close the... Um, okay, here we go. I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back in about two minutes. All right, I'm back. I wanted to just take a break. It's wild to, to just keep talking, talking, talking. The art of radio is not to leave too much dead, dead air or dead space. I downloaded a few clips for the show today, and then I'm going to introduce one of the clips. I don't know how long this introduction will go. I thought a really interesting, I, I, there I go again, that word interesting, but a persistent topic that keeps coming back to me as an herbalist, as a student of herbs is what herbs can be used on a daily basis without having a buildup or a tolerance, and it appears that there's a number of things that where it develop you develop a, to, a tolerance. Um, I use two plants, um, medicines, uh, recreational foods. One would be called uh, coffee, and I use it every day in the morning and enjoy it the same every day, the same amount. Sometimes I'll drink two cups, but most of the time I'm very satisfied just drinking one cup of coffee. And um, another uh, sort of a plant extract is nicotine. I started vaping about six years ago, and about six months after I stopped vaping, I, I like automatically stopped smoking cigarettes. So I was like, wow, so the itch or the relief or the protection that tobacco is giving me, it appears that I'm getting the same sort of comfort and effect that I got from smoking cigarettes all the time from vaping plain nicotine. And I've stated a really consistent amount. I think I finally reduced it to maybe three milligrams per hundred milliliters of nicotine. So I use about 60 milliliters of three milligram nicotine every two weeks, and I've been doing that for maybe a couple of years. And again, it, it, it appears to give me the same effects, same comfort, enjoyment from using the same amount every day. And I've been monitoring. I was like, how much nicotine do I vape? So I, I just told you, I, I go through about 60 milliliters every two weeks, and it's at three milligram strength. So I saw a really great documentary this past month on Netflix, and it was called Leaf of Faith. And please put it in your Netflix um, queue if you have Netflix. And the documentary basically talked about a plant medicine called Kratom, Kratom, Kratom. And there's, um, it's a plant that's origin is Southeast Asia. And it's become very popular in the past few years. And it appears to give um, people that have daily chronic pain a lot of relief. 
And there's many people that are, appear to be very much helped by this plan. I've always been very skeptical from the first time I heard about it because I was, my first uh, exposure to Kratom was somebody who I met in the drug recovery community in, in Florida um, who claimed that they were a recovering addict and they went to the Kava bar and they were getting dosed with Kratom at the Kava bar and that they were developing a strong tolerance and then they, they were living at the they were living at the Kava bar and it this person actually is featured in the movie Leaf of Faith, the person who I met in Florida. So I'd really like not want to tell their story because it was just, I just heard their story briefly and it, it gave me pause about like when you go to a kava bar, really what are they putting in the kava? <laughs> it's kind of cool that they actually went to this kava bar in Lake Worth, Florida and it's it's featured in the in the Kratom movie, Leaf of Faith. So it's, uh, I think, uh, I really haven't made up my mind about Kratom, but it does appear that people do develop a tolerance, especially when using it on a daily basis. So that is something really to consider when we're using drugs, uh, keep saying drugs, using plants and plant medicines that are um, on a daily basis. Many people, when they are daily cannabis users, um, when they suddenly stop, they'll develop sort of phantom symptoms. And um, there's a philosopher author named Graham Hancock. For several years ago, he was talking about how he was using cannabis really much in a way where he was uh, like avoiding his emotions and really not fully living. And he, he was using cannabis to shield himself from a lot of um, difficult emotions. And I, I have another clip about using cannabis, you know, th that people who, who may use cannabis on a daily basis may be avoiding their emotions. And um, I think I'm going to go to... Um, that clip first, but let me read Graham Hancock's post about a year or two after he stopped and he did a TED talk about his, his experience with cannabis and then stopping using it. And he, he, it was very much in the news and I think this was in 2011, 2012. And then this post on Facebook he made in 2013 was really interesting. I'm going to read Graham Hancock's post from March 10, 2013. <clears throat> it's titled, Was I Wrong to Quit Cannabis Completely? I recently and very publicly reported that I had quit cannabis in October 2011 after a 24-year nonstop habit of intense use. And that since mid-October 2011, now approaching 17 months ago, I have not consumed cannabis again. For details on how and why see my 18-minute TEDx presentation entitled The War on Consciousness and my article, Giving Up the Green Bitch. In both, but particularly the latter, I was at pains to emphasize that the green bitch, for me, was not cannabis itself, but the abusive, self-indulgent relationship, entirely my own responsibility. 
that I had developed with the herb. I also made clear that there had been a time in my life, particularly as I moved away from current affairs journalism and into the discovery of ancient mysteries when cannabis, which I used less than, had been very helpful to me. Nonetheless, many who criticized me for the article and the video presentation felt that I had not paid due respect to the remarkable and well-attested medicinal benefits of cannabis as an agency of healing in a wide range of afflictions. Recently, Linus Eskeltux, a member of my online Facebook community, drew attention to this article, published in 2006 in the peer-reviewed journal Molecular Pharmaceutics. The article reports that THC, one of the primary active ingredients of cannabis, is far superior to existing approved pharmaceutical drugs in inhibiting the aggregation in the brain of amyloid beta peptide, a key component and pathological marker of the amyloid plaques associated with the terrible scourge of Alzheimer's disease that is presently ruining the last years of life of more and more of our elderly in our society. As my old age approaches, I'm now 62, I cannot help but wonder whether the complete abstinence from cannabis that I had imposed on myself since October 2011 is entirely wise, or whether perhaps I might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater by such rigidity. In this regard, though, it proves nothing. I note that since I quit cannabis, although there have been many psychological and even creative benefits documented in my video presentation and article, I'm also aware of an insidious decline in my overall physical health. This relates particularly to the osteoarthritis that began to afflict my right hip from about the third month of 2012. The deterioration has been bewildering, sudden and rapid, and the condition has now become so bad that I simply cannot move without suffering severe pain. And after much investigation, have been advised that the only option is complete hip replacement surgery, which I am scheduled to undergo next month. So, although I know of absolutely no research to back this up, I've now begun to ask myself whether it might have been my many years of cannabis use that protected me from osteoarthritis prior to 2012, and whether if I had managed to get my habit under control and to consume cannabis responsibly and reverently in small quantities on special occasions, rather than all hours of the day and night, I might still be arthritis-free to this day. <clears throat> On the other hand, it is equally possible that cannabis simply took my mind off the developing pain in my hip through 2011, and after this analgesic effect was out of my system, I started to notice what was happening to me. Or perhaps the whole arthritis thing is completely unrelated to cannabis, or even to my age, and this is just the price I have to pay for the many demands I've made on my body. It's not the years, as the saying goes, it's the mileage. While recognizing its medicinal benefits for many conditions, even if arthritis is not one of them, I have a great fear of what might happen to me if I ever return to cannabis. Rather, I imagine as the confirmed alcoholic has a great fear of falling off the wagon. But cannabis is not alcohol, and perhaps the time will come when I can find the right way to use this interesting herb without the negative patterns of behavior that I allowed it to draw me into in the past. In this matter, 
as in so many others that concern the use of ancient and sacred psychoactive plants in our society. I feel that the so-called war on drugs has had the most malign, vicious, and unhelpful consequences. Without the distortions introduced by the drug warriors, it would be possible to envisage a rational society in which cannabis and many other psychoactive plants could be explored by those who wish to do so without fear of persecution or risk of suffering draconian punishments at the hands of the state. In such a rational society, free and open research could be conducted at a much faster rate than is possible today and into the many medicinal and healing benefits of these plants. And in the case of the cannabis, I would become more likely that strains in which both THC and CBD, cannabidiol, and the other active ingredient exist in balance, as in the case with the herb in its natural state, would become more widely accessible, available. The present illegal market, which would, of course, be put out of business if cannabis was legalized, emphasizes a quick, fast high above all else and has resulted in the selective breeding of strains in which THC is not adequately balanced by CBD. See here for a brief discussion of the problem. And he closes with, cannabis remains an emotional subject, even taboo to many, but in my view, it's positive and negative aspects both deserve wider discussion. What do you think? So I just wanted to give Graham Hancock's uh, take on his uh, claim that uh, cannabis uh, kind of like locked him out of uh, a portion of his life because he was using it abusively at all hours of the day, every single day, where perhaps um, we all have to decide if we're going to uh, use cannabis on a daily basis, whether we can um, re relegate it to a more sacred space, um, maybe just a few hours of the day. There's a, um, a herbalist named Paul Bergner, and he's um, been very outspoken about uh, cannabis and how it's in a, a highly abused drug. And he, I saw one of his things saying if you're medicating with cannabis more than three times a day, that that would be uh, his line. So. I like hearing everybody's um, attitude because I really love pot. I would love to keep using it, but I, I'm all for taking nice long breaks away from it, just to um, perhaps keep keep myself in check to to know that I'm whether I'm avoiding my emotions or not. So I wanted to put out another really cool viewpoint on cannabis and emotions. This is from John Roderick. He is in, I'm trying to think of, <laughs> the, I, I made a clip from this. Uh, oh, boy. Okay. It, it, this, this podcast is called Road Work, and it's uh, John Roderick and his um, Dan, oh, I can't remember his name. But anyway, this is John Roderick, and he talks about, he also has sort of that, um, I don't know if you'd call it a dogma, but just the way the recovery community, you know, people like when you go to a drug rehab or recovered alcoholics and drug addicts view cannabis as something that helps people to avoid their true emotions. So I wanted to uh, play John Roderick and he talks a really, he tells a really interesting story at the beginning about how he was pulled over when cannabis was legal up in Alaska and a, 
a cop uh, gave him the lowdown on what he thought about cannabis. So I'm going to play this clip, and I'll be back. It's a pretty long clip, about 12 minutes, and I'll be back. Hopefully you enjoy the clip. It's from Back to Work podcast. And he says, look, we actually don't mind if we smoke a little pot and drive. Studies have shown, this is the trooper lecturing us on the side of the road. Studies have shown that it actually kind of focuses your attention a little bit more on the road. Mm-hmm. You're a little bit more cautious and a little bit more attentive, uh, you know, which is, which acquitted with our sense of reality at the time. Yeah. We were like, yeah, that's pretty true. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you're stoned, you definitely like tunnel vision on what you're doing, but not so much that you're not looking around. I mean, you're definitely looking around and you're not it's not like when drunk drivers are going 30 in a 70 either you're not you don't lose touch with reality right you're stoned but you're not fucked up even if you're so stoned you're fucked up you're not i suppose there is a, an amount of stoned where it would be unsafe to drive and i know now with all the legalization campaigns now you've got billboards and cops saying all the time like if you're stoned you're not safe to drive right but i you can be stoned and drive i have driven thousands and thousands of miles miles baked out of my mind and you're you're it does not really it's not the thing that affects your driving anyway so the, so we're like yes sir you know like uh-huh uh-huh and then he hears his radio go off like and he kind of says hold on and he cocks his head like listening to back to his car where the radio is because right. this is before cops had I had the walkie like, on their shoulder yeah, yeah yeah they didn't have that and then his radio goes, and he says, today's your lucky day. And he, he turns the, the box over, dumps the pot out on the ground, steps on it once and kind of grinds his heel and then runs back to his car boop, and off he goes. Yeah. I, lo- I like that sound effect you just did. <laughs> so we're sitting there. Oh, that's a, that's an old joke I used to do, you know, at, riding in a car with like five stoners yeah, and you're just cruising along. <laughs> That's why you're music. so good at it. I'd be, I'd sit in the back seat and I'd go Boop! and everybody would, whoa, you know, like people, <laughs> it, scared, it scared me. I'm not even high right now. <laughs> people would, you know, start throwing their joints out the window and it, Oh, lots of fun. Good. <laughs> um, you're the worst. So, you're the worst. So of course I would open. So of course what I did was I opened the car door after the, Trooper was out of sight, and I grabbed all the weed that was now full of, like, gravel, threw it back in the shoebox, and off we went. Yeah. And that, and, you know, weed had been a la- uh, had been legal in Alaska uh, for a long time at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the troopers just had a very sanguine idea. Now, while I was in my early, or my late teens, you know, my dad was politically active up there, and we would go to Rotary Club meetings together and he would, you know, take me to all these political events. And when the when the politicians, the Washington politicians were in town, we would have we would go to these things. And I was kind of soaking it up. I was contemptuous of that world because I was a young revolutionary. But I also liked going to the events because it was a it was a peek behind the curtain. And during this period, the the predictable elements in Alaska politics were lobbying hard to make marijuana illegal again. Um, and it was, it wasn't legal to, it was one of those laws where it wasn't legal to grow. It wasn't legal to transport and it wasn't legal to sell, but you could have up to three ounces at your house and, and nobody, you know, if you couldn't grow it, you couldn't sell it, you couldn't transport it. 
was some law had to be broken for that pot to get to your house. But that was like one of these don't ask, don't tell situations. Right. I don't remember exactly what the law was, but up to a few, up to a, a reasonable quantity, you could possess marijuana in Alaska and, and it wasn't a crime. And this was during the late Reagan, early Bush years, Bush one. Now, has it, All, didn't it become illegal and then get re-legalized or has it always, has it always stayed legal there? No, this, that's what I'm saying. This group of, of conservative politicians, ministers, cops, um, and not, you know, not the cops like that state trooper that dealt with us, but like the law and order types that like, like authority and like to be dicks. Um, they, they, I remember sitting in, in a couple of these meetings, these big meetings where all the movers and shakers were, where they would get up and give presentations about how pot was a gateway drug and how the Reagan administration wasn't going to give us money for our roads if we didn't make pot illegal. And they succeeded. They succeeded in, in re-illegalizing it. And I was, you know, I was smoking a lot of pot then and really sneered at them as they gave these speeches. Yeah. But that said, being too baked to put a thought together, which is the ultimate, uh, that is the worst thing that happens when you're, when you're high. Right, you get too baked to put a thought together. Um, the bad things that go along with that are, you definitely think that everybody in the room is uh, thinking that you are a dork when they're not. You know, it's it's we used to talk about it all the time. The paranoia that you get when you're stoned. Yeah, it's not a paranoia that causes you to build a bunker under your house. It's just a it's a it's a fleeting paranoia. Like, whoa, I'm so paranoid right now. So it's, it's like when Black Sabbath sings Paranoid, that's what they're talking about, right? The, the, we think of paranoids now as being these dangerous gun hoarding, right. uh, like internet tinfoil hats. But throughout all the drug years, all the talk of paranoia was just talking about being stoned on pot and being paranoid about whether – you know, but, and it's not paranoid like, oh, my friends are sitting here hating me. It's that you'll say something like, G. Gordon Liddy, have you ever smoked pot? <laughs> and then G. Gordon Liddy says no, no. and stares at you. <laughs> and then you don't say anything back. And you're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like everybody thinks I'm such an idiot right now. And you go back to your chair and you're like, oh, everybody in the room is thinking. I'm right. It's Nobody more of a, I would call it a heavy suspicion. You just feel yeah, very they, suspicious of, of, of different things. Well, and just, you know, like, like nobody's thinking about you anymore, dude. They've moved on. They're on to another thing. Like you're not, you, you are the one that's worried about it. But so that's one of the bad effects, but these, these effects wear off. If you are a chronic pot smoker, the effect is that you don't grow up. And this is true of any drug, alcohol included, every drug except I think caffeine and nicotine probably, but drugs that affect you emotionally. What they do is they intrude in between you and your emotional growth. So, you know, you, you hear people talk about emotional intelligence. And drugs affect your emotions. That's their primary, um, that's their primary world. And so it's like if, it's like you were trying to study math and every day um, as you were sitting after you had taken your math lesson, as you were sitting processing it, doing your homework, you uh, 
um, like you hit, not hit yourself with a hammer, but as you're trying to process your homework, you just took a sleeping pill or something and weren't able to finish processing your homework. Right. It's just emotionally drugs. They don't put you to sleep. They just direct your emotional work somewhere else because they stimulate your emotions. Right. So, so the emotions that you have when you're on drugs are not relevant to what's going on in your actual life. Mm -hmm. And it, and it intrudes on processing your real emotions, your real feelings about things. Something happens. You're like, Oh boy, I feel something like this. I, I, I feel something about this. I'd better smoke a joint or take a drink or something else. Do this. I'd better do some drugs right now because this emotional thing is so heightened. And then the drugs give you an emotion, a, 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 a facsimile of an emotion, and you go over and experience that. And whether it distracts you or whether it heightens the experience or whether it, it completely mutes it, it doesn't matter because it intrudes. And so you can smoke pot for decades and say, it never affected me. But, but the fact is you have never really worked through anything emotionally. Like you, you're good at your job. Probably you, I'm almost certain that you can't find your wallet a lot of the time. You're talking you about still, people who are maybe smoking like, like throughout the day, every day well, or, or you know, people who of, smoke once a, a month. I mean, a lot what, of different ways to be a, be a pot smoker. I, if you're smoking once a month, no, that means that 29 and a half of the rest of the days of the month, you're processing your emotions. Like right. pot doesn't have a, this is the thing about this Elon Musk thing. Like if he got stoned, the next day he's once again unstoned. Right. And there is zero, there is less lasting effect of having been stoned yesterday than there is lasting effect of having been drunk yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you get wasted baked, you could have a pot hangover the next day. But it's a pot, I mean, if you eat 14 hot dogs, you'll have a hangover. <laughs> so, I mean, you, a sodium hangover. If you eat four hot dogs, you will. So, like... Whether or not it affects you the next day, yeah. But, I mean, if you smoke pot once a month, there is not a thing more benign than that. I mean, honestly. And if I could smoke pot once a month, my God, what a gift. Because pot is great. It gives you, it gives you little insights into things. It gives you little, I mean, it gives you little gifts, right? You do. You see through the fabric a little bit. You know, it. it you see through the the matrix, just a little, not a ton. You're not like, it's not some red pill. You just see things differently. You're like, whoa, I never really, I mean, it's a cliche to say like, whoa, did you ever really look at a, at a garbage can before? But, but it's real too. You do. You look at a garbage can and you're like, whoa, I never noticed about them that blank, you know, that they're built to be stacked or they're made you know, you see some aspect of their manufacture on the, in these common things that you, that we look at all the time. So we don't notice things about it. and pot causes you to notice those, but I can't smoke pot one time a month. I, if I started smoking pot again, I would very quickly smoke pot all, all the time. And a lot of people are like that, right? So I'm no, I'm talking about chronic pot smokers that are stoned every day that, that regard it as a part of their life. And again, they're not dangerous, they're not violent, they're not hurting anybody except maybe their kids who 
are like my dad stoned all the time. And that doesn't really hurt him as bad as like my dad beats me with a belt. Mm -hmm. But it is a kind of emotional distance that you put between yourself and your kids or your lover or everybody that is just like, oh, a lot of the things that are going down in your life, you're just stoned for. And so you're not 100% sharing the experience with other people. You're just in your like stone bubble. Okay. So that, when I heard that podcast, it gave me pause because I was like, oh, wow, I'd like to use pot every day, but not all day long or probably not even as Paul Bergner says um, three times a day. That, that would be quite a bit for me. I just get, came back from visiting Colorado. So I wanted to try everything. And by the time I, you know, I got back from Colorado, I was like, oh, I've had enough. And it's funny that you, you get that way. But it was a great, really wonderful trip to Colorado. And um, I'll, I'll get back to my trip to Colorado later in the show. So I want to bring this back to Kratom. So there's um, reports that Kratom, you can develop a tolerance where you'll you you get a wonderful euphoric effect, and then if you if it's used on days again, this is the theme like using something on a consecutive days where you need more and more to get the same sort of satisfaction. So I saw after watching this Leaf of Faith movie on Netflix, I was like, I want to learn more about this crater. Maybe I did not give it a fair shake. That um, and I'm really happy that it, it, the Leaf of Faith movie did show some people that are, are questioning it. And the other part about uh, kratom, kratom is it's often packaged in a really weird way. It says uh, not for internal use, and I, I don't want to put anything in my body. Although we buy uh, pounds of comfrey leaf, and that's also labeled not for internal use. Uh, for external use only. So, so um, I looked around on Kratom online, and I've been just doing a little bit of research about it, and it appears there's many different kinds of Kratom. There's red, yellow, green. There's mixtures of different Kratom. And it appears that the price of it is about $169 a kilo. And um, the, the movie goes into... Also, there's companies that are trying to market it and um, bring it into a more accountable way where they're not labeling it for, you know, for external use only. And um, I, I just encourage you to check out the movie Leaf of Faith. Perhaps if there's someone in your life that uh, is trying to avoid using opiate drugs, but they're, they're having chronic pain issues, maybe Kratom would be helpful for them. And I will come back to this uh, subject on future shows, but I just wanted to give another um, perspective on Kratom because that um, there's someone online and they they did a YouTube video called Why I Stopped Taking Kratom, quote, is it truly safe? So I wanted to just play a clip from that and show you their experience where they built up a tolerance because they were using it on consecutive days. So perhaps Kratom is one of those things, maybe it is um, a really wonderful, wonderful plant that will give you a lot of pleasure, but maybe um, really take, uh, take caution if you're going to be using it every day. 
it seems to be people that are using it every day or using it as an alternative to having to use uh, opiate um, type painkillers. So I'm going to play this other uh, clip from Why I Stopped Taking Kratom. Usually what happens is when a user first realizes that you can't keep taking Kratom to get higher and higher, they keep their doses to average you know, levels because they don't want to feel like shit again. Or a lot of people actually just never even touch Kratom again after that experience. That's why it is such a powerful substance, in my opinion, for helping people quit harder drugs because you really you know, can't abuse it in the same way. That's not to say that it can't be abused, but it's harder to abuse it recreationally than other drugs, which don't have that ceiling effect. But regardless of all of these positive effects that I'm talking about, this still does not mean that Kratom is necessarily 100% safe, non-addictive, or free from its own withdrawals. They might not be as bad as heroin withdrawals, but the compound is really not as benign as a lot of the internet would you know, lead you to believe. And so basically the first time I tried Kratom was a little over two years ago. Now I was first interested in it because I was at that time also diagnosed with ADHD. I was basically diagnosed at 30 and I have a video coming out about that soon. And I really didn't want to use my ADHD meds the way they were prescribed because I'm against taking something every single day because of how it can mess up your neurochemistry. I mean, fancy that. It's a total walking contradiction. But anyway, so what I was doing was looking for compounds that I could use in between what I called my focus med doses. So I would take the prescribed amphetamines once every three to five days, and then maybe one or two days a week, I would take Kratom because I believe that since it was, you know, a plant that holds stupid, you know, it's natural, so it's got to be safe bullshit. And that's largely why I was using it because it actually did help me feel motivated and it was helping me get work done. So what happened with Kratom was actually rather unique in the fact that I didn't start taking it every day because I became addicted to it. I started taking it every day because I hurt my back. As a lot of you guys know, I like to work out. Sometimes I'm a bit of an idiot and I just lift weight that's way too heavy for me because now I'm in my 30s and I'm becoming this old man who needs to friggin' warm up so much more than I used to. I was totally blown away with the analgesic effects. It would make the back pain disappear for anywhere from four to even eight hours. That's why I started taking the Kratom daily. Um, but as soon as you make that jump to daily use, it doesn't really stop there. Because now that, at least for me, now that I allowed myself to consume it every day, what happened was once a day would become twice a day. Because the first dose, which started at 4 grams, which eventually became 6.5 grams, would either not really do much or I'd only feel it for 30 minutes. So I'd have to take that dose and then an hour or two later I'd take another 1.5 to 3 grams um, to really even get the same effects that I used to get from half that much. And then six hours later, I would start getting withdrawal effects. I'd get a runny nose and I'd start feeling just really down and shitty. So I would take another dose of about four to five grams, which would, you know, carry me through to the next morning. And this habit of doing a dose and then a little booster and then another dose, which is technically three doses a day, kind of carried on for a while. It might have even been as long as four or five months of dosing that heavy.
I was averaging anywhere from 12 to 15 grams of kratom per day. The only days that I'd really take off um, from consuming kratom would be on days where I would consume the focus meds, which oddly enough, I did keep a pretty steady schedule with. There is actually an addictive property to kratom in that you, well, even mentally, start to yearn for it. What it does is, well, it's very similar to smoking or really just all drugs. It puts little hooks inside you. What you start to do mentally is you attach certain things with the use of kratom and it becomes habitual. For example, all of a sudden when you're on kratom, going out and socializing feels a lot easier. At least for me, it would make me feel more social um, to the point where you don't even really want to leave your house without it. So you start thinking, how can I quit taking this thing when I depend on it so much? just to no longer feel so introverted. Again, I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but I do want to point out that all of these negative effects are simply when someone consumes Kratom daily or multiple times a day. There really aren't many drugs that you can safely use every day. And I guess what I'm getting at is because of all the misinformation out there and all the lies about withdrawals, I thought that if I ever wanted to quit and get off it, um, you know, if my back stopped hurting, which was really my reason for taking it until it got to the point where I realized you know, my back hasn't even hurt for over a month and I'm still taking this every day and I feel like I can't stop. And that's when like the light bulb went off and I said, I got a problem here. I must have believed that because it was a plant, it meant that it was okay or because it was related to coffee and you can drink coffee every day that I could take Kratom every day and it was fine. I, on some level, really believed that the effects were very benign and I used to tell people this. And then I started doing research and that's when I realized that these withdrawals aren't uncommon from daily use. They're actually quite common. I also realized that the best way to quit Kratom because these withdrawals suck so hard is to actually lower your dose very slowly. A lot of people suggest lowering your dose 10% each month, meaning well, it could take like half a year or more to quit. And I thought, hell no, I don't want to do this. I want to be done with this as quickly as possible. I don't want to have to drink this green sludge for the rest of my life to just feel like myself. But one of the things that I decided to do to really help me through the process was work out again. Even though I really didn't feel like it, I felt like absolute shit, but I still forced myself to exercise because in doing that, I realized that I could force myself to do things that I don't enjoy, such as I could force myself to get through this shitty process. What a lot of people don't realize who have never gone through an addiction, a huge reason why people fail and they relapse is not because they necessarily want to get high. What I found was the actual cravings disappeared really quickly. Within three or four days after my last dose, I physically wasn't craving it um, you know, for the uplifting effects. I was just craving any way I could to feel normal again, to be able to sleep. I can't even imagine what people go through who are getting off heroin and how much they need something like Kratom to help them through that. Um, or even things like oxycodone or methadone. The withdrawals from that daily, yeah, they, they gotta be much, much worse. Okay, so that was a YouTube video uh, with a first-hand account of someone who was using really high amounts of Kratom on a daily basis and they decided to just uh, do a cold uh, turkey quit. I thought it was very helpful that someone maybe who is um, using Kratom as a pain medicine uh, and they need to um, 
you know, turn on, turn it off, um, that they could just reduce it by 10%. So I found that very helpful information. Even though um, they were just relaying somebody who told them, and they just didn't have the patience to be able to um, just reduce their dosage by 10%. I don't, you know, um, I'm curious about why I'm interested in all these things about using things every day. Perhaps I'm just trying to not put myself out on this dependency where I have um, these plant medicines in my life that I don't grow, I can't harvest myself, that I have to rely on people shipping them to me. So um, that's why it's really cool that I've discovered lion's mane mushroom, and they're relatively easy to grow at home. And I've been using uh, lion's mane mushroom mostly, mostly daily for a few months now, and I find that, that I mentioned it on a previous uh, a radio show that I stopped using it for a few weeks and I just did not feel that sharpness that I really enjoy having. So I've been using one to two grams of powdered lion's mane with some hot water. And recently I had a whole bunch that I just made a regular infusion with and I kept it in the refrigerator and that took me three days to finish a quart of the lion's mane <laughs> infusion. And um, so I wanted to play some clips about lion's mane mushroom from Paul Stamets. He was on a podcast last November, the Joe Rogan podcast. And that's it, it's a two-hour podcast, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the podcast. But I want to just pick and choose some things that were mentioned on. And the first thing is... Uh, this is the other thing that I'm very interested in microdosing with psilocybin. So I've been investigating uh, how to get psilocybin, how to grow my own psilocybin, mushrooms. I, mean, I live near some cow fields, so I could probably just pick, pick my own psilocybin. So it's not like some exotic plant like kratom that I don't have access to. But I don't really like uh, taking uh, strong uh, visionary journeys and I'm really interested in being able to not get migraine or cluster headaches twice a year and there's a lot of uh, reports that this is really very much helpful. Um, one of the things I was doing in Colorado was I was at a conference where people uh, suffer from cluster headaches and migraines of different types that uh, or either episodic or chronic. Many people have uh, gotten a lot of help from using psilocybin. And they'll use it uh, at a, uh, higher doses, um, you know, the three, three grams or plus where they'll have four to six hours of uh, having an amazing experience. Uh, Paul Stamets on the Joe Rogan podcast was uh, brought up the stone to ape hypothesis. Uh, hopefully this clip works, and it talks on how psilocybin may be the may be a reason how human beings um, made an evolutionary jump. So I'm going to play this clip. Hopefully it works. And Terence and Dennis both came up with a stoned ape theory. Now it's not a theory; it's a hypothesis. A hypothesis is speculative, uh, but cannot necessarily be as not yet proven. A theory is a hypothesis that has been tested and proven with facts. So I disagree with them in saying it's not a theory, it's a hypothesis. 
but the hypothesis of the stone ape uh, 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 of the stone ape, which I think you've alluded to before, is that with climate change and as the savannas increase and our primate ancestors came out of the, out of the forest canopies, they're they're tracking across the savanna. And if you're a hunter, what do you look? You look for footsteps and you look for scat. Uh, and the most significant fleshy mushroom going out of poop in in Africa, hippopotamus, elephant, you know, uh, deer, antelope, etc., um, is Lassie cubensis. It's a very large mushroom. You're hungry. You're with your clan. You consume it, and then 20 minutes later, you're you are catapulted in this extraordinary experience. Psilocybin substitutes as serotonin becomes a better tr neurotransmitter, activates neurogenesis. It causes new neurons to form, new pathways of knowledge. So that's the stone date hypothesis, and it speaks to a mystery that the human brain, uh, basically the brain cavity doubled in size in about 2 million years. Some people say it's less, as two, uh, less than 200,000. Okay, that was the first clip that talked about a little bit how I like the way Paul Stamets calls it psilocybe. <laughs> and then he goes back to saying psilocybe, but psilocybe, <laughs> cubensis. So he gets into more about lion's mane in this next clip and how he is investigating how it may be able to be used as a stack for um, uh, brain aging uh, prevention and how we can prevent our, our brains from deteriorating into old age using lion's mane stacked with psilocybe. So I'm going to play that clip. That's a, bit, a longer clip. But I think this speaks to increasing intelligence. And uh, we all will suffer from some form of dementia. And neuropathy occurs. Um, there is a really wonderful safe and legal mushroom to use that leads to neurogenesis. And that's called lion's mane. And lion's mane is a cascading white icicle edible and choice mushroom they sell in the stores. The what Latin, stores? Well, grocery stores really? all over, yeah. Lion's mane, they're called, um, they have various brand names. One that I love is called Pom Pom Blanc. It looks like pom poms from cheerleaders. And lion's mane contains a, a unique group of compounds wow, uh, beautiful. called uh, aranacines and hericinones. And these regenerate myelin on the axons of nerves. And so this is a mushroom. Kawagishi discovered this in 1994, a Japanese researcher, and he postulated it as a potential uh, preventative or treatment for Alzheimer's, muscular dystrophy, et cetera. But do you take it? I take it every day. Every day? Every day. Do you take it in a raw form? or do I you... take it in capsules. Oh. Uh, so you buy it? Yeah. We have a... We have a, an extensive product line. Uh, you do? Yes. Well, how do you get to that? Hostdefense.com. Hostdefense.com. Why host defense? So that's part of your uh, innate immunity response, ah. supporting your immunity. But we, our main business is at fungi.com. And I registered that name myself. I'm kind of proud of that. It cost mm -hmm. me 25 bucks, 1994. Wow, you were on ahead. I was on ahead of the ball. Yeah. So winterize but, yourself. But lion's mane is a safe mushroom to consume. There are several clinical studies out on it treating mild uh, cognitive um, dysfunction. Uh, but there's two mouse studies that I think are quite illustrative. And this is translational medicine. This translates from mice experiments to humans. We already know that it has aspects of neurogenesis. When you 
go into Alzheimer, a state of Alzheimer's, which is a big complex, but one of the characteristics is the formation of amyloid plaques. Demyelination of the neurons, myelin transmits the neural signals. Demyelination occurs, your outer sheath on the neurons is, is interrupted by amyloid plaques that then prevent neurotransmission. So the experiments with the mice, which I think are so interesting, was one experiment was the, um, the maze experiment where the mice were put into an arena and they went out a corridor and they, they went one way in the corridor, they would find food, the other way is no food. Well, very quickly the mice learned. You know, you go out the corridor, go to the left, you find food. They injected it then with a toxic uh, polypeptide that induces amyloid pa uh, plaque formation that is a neurotoxin. Very quickly, after two weeks or so, the mice developed neuropathy. Uh, they got confused. They couldn't remember which way to go. It randomized. Upon giving these mice, again, mushrooms for a few weeks, they nearly renormalized. Upon sacrificing the mice in the first part of the experiment, they saw the amyloid plaques and the demyelination. The second part of the experiment, of course, another subset of mice, um, they found that the myelin regrew and the amyloid plaque had resolved. This is post-mortem. You say, by you say sacrifice, well, yeah, you're, you're, mice, you're so you, you, yeah, killing you, them. Yeah, you're, you're basically you're, cutting you're, their brains you're, open. You're cutting off a representative sample. Right. You sacrifice them. You determine, yeah, that's representative of the population. Now, mm -hmm. the remaining population that's alive, they fed them the mushrooms, and they found that they regained uh, neurological function. Wow. The other experiment, which I find is even more fun, is, um, and this was done in Japan, uh, they put like 100 mice in an arena, and uh, they put a toy in the middle of the cage. And all the mice got excited. They came up and sniffed it and smelled it, and they got really excited. And, and they sat there with, uh, with counters to measure the number of points of contact, how many points of contact the mice have exploring a new toy. So they got a really good baseline, hundreds of data points. And then they did the same thing. Then they introduced this cyclopeptide, this neurotoxin, and the mice then, after a while, were uninterested didn't have imagination, no curiosity. They put in a new toy, they were disinterested. They did the same thing. Now even their full-blown dementia-like symptoms gave them lion's mane mushrooms. And after a few weeks, when they put in a new toy, they came back to near normal levels. Upon sacrificing the mice, they found that the amyloid plaque had resolved and myelin had regenerated and neurogenesis had occurred. This is a smart mushroom. Now the tragedy that we face, I believe as a society, is we have people like yourself, people like me, we're all going to suffer through neuropathy. We have a lifetime of a body intellect of knowledge that we're going to start losing. So what is the loss to society of our elders forgetting, not remembering? So I think this is something that's really extraordinarily exciting. It's not patentable. It's the, the, the drug companies have no interest in this, but this is probably the number one thing that people can do, in my mind, to, to not only preserve cognitive function, but to expand it. Now, I personally would love to see it legal to stack them both together, stacking psilocybin with lion's mane. And I think that stacking thing and then combining it with vitamin D3. Now, if I suggest vitamin D3, niacin, because those of you who have had a niacin flush, you know, 200 milligrams of niacin or more, you get red, you get itchy, and neuropathy typically is presented at the fingertips, at the end of your toes and your fingers and your peripheral nervous system. As you have neuropathy, the nerve endings begin to die backwards. So my idea here is because there are different receptors being activated, 
by psilocybin than were the Aranaceans from lion's mane, if you stack lion's mane with psilocybin mushrooms with niacin, the advantage is, and I'm, this is hypothetical, but this is something I think is well worth testing, is that niacin can help drive the neurogenic benefits of psilocybin and aranacines to the end of the peripheral nervous system. So we actually are planning right now a clinical study in Oregon with lion's mane mushrooms. Uh, the physicians uh, who've looked at the research, which is robust, uh, are convinced that it, it's worthy, and they have their own funding. So I'm, we're we're going to do an N of 30 study, is what we hope to do, 30 patients, and we hope to begin that study in the next year. Okay, so that was my second clip of Paul Stamets on the Joe Rogan podcast, and that's from November of 2017, and you can um, find it very easily. It's on YouTube. And this is the final thing about psilocybin that Paul Stamets talks about, and he talks about a study of... 440,000 prisoners and how just using psilocybin once there seems there is a correlation of um, less less criminal um, behavior so we all know that correlation does not equal causation but um, it's uh, 440,000 people is quite quite convincing I'm going to um, play the psilocybin prison study. It's only about a minute and a half. Something that, unfortunately, because it can be marginalized by the party atmosphere and yeah. used as a party drug, there's a really amazing study that just came out about five days ago. It's a big data uh, study, 440,000 people, prisoners, were surveyed over 10 years in the Department of Human and Health Services data bank, and they found an amazing correlation. If you had, in this patient, in this prisoners, one experience with psilocybin in your life, one experience, it reduced in that population compared to the people who did not take psilocybin mushrooms, an 18% reduction in burglary and, and, lar and larceny, and up to a 27% reduction and other crimes, including violent crimes. Well, so that's phenomenal. Actually, I got my numbers reversed. There's 27% reduction in burglary, 18% reduction in violent crime. Now, think of the, of the damage, not only to the victims and the victims' families, the court system, the lawyers, the collateral damage, people being upset because they're being criminalized in prison for something, you know, for merely possessing psilocybin mushrooms or something like that. But think of the return on investment, a four- to six-hour experience creates a lifetime benefit to society, reducing criminal activity by 18 to 27%. This is phenomenal. Mm. This, is, this is something that can help the health of our, of, of our human psyche, of our, of our social system, of reducing uh, trauma throughout in our entire society. Okay, so there's about 40 minutes left of the two-hour show, so I may be ending the show early right um, this month. Uh, we do have call-ins. If you want to call in, you can help me uh, produce the show. Uh, perhaps I will have a full two hours of content available next month. Uh, finally, I wanted to just tell you my experiments with uh, shipping uh, things out of Colorado and it appears that there's, it's very easy to ship CBD medicine out of Colorado, but I would uh, 
strongly uh, uh, encourage you to keep it to small packages because there's still many, many thousands of packages that are being intercepted from the Postal Service out of Colorado. And um, I think it would be the small flat rate box, which is about the, half the size of a cigar box. And I would just keep it to uh, small amounts because um, it, I just did, did my own personal experiments and there, there, there is a lot of mail that is being inter, um, intercepted from Colorado. Colorado has some of the best quality CBD medicine in the world right now. It's, um, uh, real, it's high in uh, many of the things that it, it, much of the CBD that is available is uh, extracted with chemicals from uh, chemical solvents and there's chemical solvent residues and you're likely to get really good uh, quality CBD um, uh, whole plant um, medicine from Colorado. So until then, um, I was really happy though when I got home. Um, I found that there's local people that are getting um, licenses to grow and they're locally produced CBD medicine. So as time goes on, CBD will be a local plant medicine. It won't be something that we'll have to ship away, um, you know, have to receive through the mail and through from a place where it's legal and be uh, under suspicion of federal laws and all that. So um, um, just wanted to encourage everyone to um, not to be afraid to uh, use the Postal Service to ship CBD medicine because it's uh, relatively safe, but it can be intercepted. And um, so I would encourage you just to keep it to small packages. I think the small flat rate box is $7 to mail, so keep it, keep it small if you're shipping uh, CBD medicines out of Colorado. Um, other than that, I think I'm going to end the show early tonight, and I've had a great time. I think I've covered everything that I wanted to cover. I'll have more next month. I do this show on the first Thursday of the month. If you want to interact with me, please send me an email at peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So I will say goodnight. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.